I was a little nervous when we asked Corey to do the introduction. I wasn't sure where he was going to go with some things. I'm sure he'd have some interesting ammunition to use, but uh, I do appreciate being here. Um, it's an honor, really, to uh, worship with you, uh, both you physically and those of you that are watching online. I think very highly of your lead pastor, Renus. My first memory of Renus was back when I was in high school, he was in a skit at Alberta Bible College, a Star Trek skit, and he was Jean-Luc Picard and did a fabulous job. Later on, I met Renus uh, at a youth camp up in Grand Prairie, and he was playing a very scary Nero and during a wide game with the youth. Uh, you probably didn't realize he is a man of many talents, that Renus. At the same time, uh, Renus has always spoken very highly of all of you and, and the ministry work that you guys do, uh, especially in the community. And I'm always impressed when, when Renus starts talking about you all. I'm just like, praise God for Varsity Bible Church. And so that's why I say it's my honor to be here uh, with you all. And praise God for the work that you do and will continue to do. So as Corey mentioned that we're in this series on uh, common ground and looking at the, uh, the kind of foundational beliefs that Varsity Bible Church uh, has. And today's no exception. Today we're going to look at our humanity. Last Sunday, in a sense, we looked at kind of who is Jesus. Today we're going to look at who we are in that, uh, from that perspective. Now, on your belief system or on statement of beliefs, it says that we believe that although humanity is created in the image of God, that this image has been deeply distorted by sin. Consequently, human beings are alienated from God and live in darkness. Let's unpack that a little bit. There's a lot of theology going there, and it's very profound and important, but let's unpack that a little bit and then kind of talk about or explore why that is a very significant sort of belief. To begin with, I think we have to go way back to the Garden of Eden and a handful of sand. Do you know what happens when you melt at 1,500 degrees Celsius sand, soda ash, and limestone? You get glass. For 5,500 years, humanity has been making glass. And if you think about it, glass is one of those major inventions of humanity, major achievements. Think of all the ways glass is being used. We look at glass and we use it as containers, transparent containers, so we can see the contents. We get telescopes that we can peer into galaxies far, far away through glass. They are inert enough that they can hold strong acids and not break down. We turn them into mirrors so that they can reflect the sun's rays towards a turbine and, or towards a heat source and then generate turbine for electricity. The world is connected via data because of glass, the fiber optics that wrap around the globe. They focus light and allow us to send lasers even to outer space. In the medical field, in the architecture, in art, for most of us too, or many of us, we all see the world better because of glass, our eyewear, right? 
In a sense, I think a glass container is kind of a metaphor for our humanity. So we're going to use, just work with me a little bit here. We're going to use a little bit of creativity and, and use this as a metaphor for looking at the Genesis creation account of man. Now, if you have your Bibles with you, either digitally or, uh, or you can watch on there. Hopefully, it's not too small to read. It's, it might be a little bit small. I apologize for that. Um, but we're going to turn to Genesis chapter 2 to begin with. Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 5. And this is the text. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord formed a man from, my paraphrase, hot sand and other elements. And he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Let me jump back to Genesis chapter 1, repeating the, Genesis, uh, the, the creation account. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image. And in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image, God created them. Male and female, he created them. The image of God. God takes dirt, or if you will, sand, soda, ash, and makes this beautiful, beautiful object. But it's just an object. It's, it's just like all of other creation. But then he does something different. He breathes himself into this. He imparts his very image into the glass, and we, came, and we become human. Notice the key difference in the language of creation. All of creation is created by God's words. He speaks creation into existence. But there's something different with humanity. With humanity, he breathes into existence. And I think the, the author here is trying to say that there's something special going on here. Focus your attention. See that God is doing something unique here, that he is imparting his very essence into this creature and making him the first man and woman. What does this mean? What does it mean to be created in the image of God? We are given a soul. We are given immortality, reason, a concept of the future, freedom to decide, to choose. We are given the sense of virtues. But I think we're also given the human capacity to be in relationship with God, this deep relationship that no other bit of creation gets to enjoy in the same way. God lovingly created us in His image to display His glory through our enjoyment of Him. Think of the implications of that. We are now become accountable to Him. We, we can trust Him as our Creator. Each person has great value. We have a God-centered purpose because we are in the image of God. And He intends for us to find great satisfaction in Him. We are like this beautiful glass vase filled with His qualities. 
Without his breath, our bodies are just a glass container, missing what truly makes us special. But when the container itself is designed to let the contents show forth, when God breathes into us, his qualities are intended to shine forth throughout our lives. There is a, the whole Bible, if you will, if you look at the whole Bible, there is a pattern that gets repeated, and, and, and there's a big pattern that gets told of the biblical story from the beginning and to, to the end. And it gets repeated over and over, this, this biblical pattern. If we look at certain Bible stories, we see this four-point pattern go on. Some people call it our story because it is very much a, a human story. Some call it the Bible's meta-narrative. It has four parts, as you see on the slide here. Creation. And then the next thing is fall. The next thing is redemption. And then new creation. Some of you may have heard this sort of uh, pattern before. I, I believe that Renus has spoken talking about this meta-narrative before. Why is this important? Because this pattern that we see, starting with creation, gets repeated. But it, this pattern gives us hope because of what's going to come next. And I believe it should affect how we treat one another. So the first step of the pattern is this creation, that God's image is in all of us. Scholars like to call it imago Dei, this Latin expression of God, uh, uh, God's image or the image of God. But when we think about it, it's beautiful. It's filled with God's spirit. And sometimes we think, yeah, that's me. I'm beautiful. I look good. But I don't know about that person down the street who's over at Tim Hortons by the checkout or by the um, just past the order drive-in drive-through asking for money that person doesn't look like this what about that person who's my neighbor who is always irritating me I don't know this mm, hard to believe or that person who used to be my friend on Facebook that has just been blasting me with a bunch of hateful comments and, and mean comments. How could they be the image of God also? That's the challenge that we're wrestling with, that, that we encounter, that we start with, is that all of us are created in the image of God. Those that we love, ourselves, and those that we have a hard time loving. One of my hobbies, as Corey mentioned, is photography. I love taking pictures, but not just any kind of pictures. What gets me most excited is taking pictures of people. There is just something about people that I find fascinating, and especially when I get to know them and, and hear their story. I'm just, I'm so intrigued. And it, I just, I wonder if it's just me trying to see the Imago Dei, the image of God in people. It's that God image that intrigues me as it's reflected through people around me. We are created in God's image to reflect God, but also be drawn closer to God. One of God's essential qualities is a relational quality, that He is in relationship. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, by nature, is a relational uh, uh, quality. And God imbues, uh, puts that into all of us, and his desire is for us to be in a deep relationship with him. But something happened. 
And we go to the next stage, the fall in our meta-narrative. It's the cycle that gets repeated. We see this happen in the story of Cain and Abel where Cain kills his brother, breaks the relationship, breaks down the family, and then he's outcasted. He's, he's having to wander in fear for his life. Later on, we read about the Tower of Babel, this, this coming together of humanity to say, look how good we are. And then God confuses their languages to slow down this collaboration of evil. The story gets repeated in the flood where God says, my heart is grieved. I, I made them in my own image and yet they've rejected that. They've tarnished that. And so he wipes out almost all of humanity to slow down global wickedness. Through the... Um, First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, we continually read how God's people, instead of worshiping Him, worship idols and wicked gods of their neighbors. And so God, to root out national uh, idolatry, sends them off into exile to, to strip that away, to, to shake their, get their attention. And I believe that the Bible is sharing these stories to, again, point to this biblical pattern that gets repeated to say that we have broken relationship with Him. Paul says in Romans chapter 3, all have sinned have come and have fallen short of the glory of God. Even though we are image bearers, which is pretty impressive, we don't always accurately reflect that image, do we? And some of our sickness comes from not just tarnishing our own image of God's uh, nature, it's Tarnishing the image in other people. You know, when someone does something heinous, what's the language that usually happens in describing that person? We say that person's a monster. It's a horrible person. In a sense, we are taking away their humanity because what they've done is so wicked that it's actually more scary to think that they're a God-bearing human being. There's a story told in, in 1961... The world's eyes are on the Nuremberg trials in Germany. They were having a war crimes tribunal. And a number of people had come forward to testify against Adolf Eichmann, who was one of the masterminds of the Nazi death camps. One of those testifying was this, this Jewish man, um, Yehiel Dunier, who was a, a survivor of one of those camps. And Dunier faced this man who had been one of those masterminds, and he just sobbed, and he just sobbed. And he sobbed so uncontrollably that at one point he just collapses to the floor. Everyone watching assumed that his reaction was that he was reliving those atrocities, those events in his mind, but that wasn't the case. Mike Wallace of 66 Minutes was asking him about what happened, what was going through his mind at that time, and he said that he explained that when he looked at Eichmann, when he was going to confront this, this man's face, that he expected to see a monster, a personification of evil itself. But instead, as he gazed into Eichmann's eyes, he realized for the first time that sin and evil have become a natural human condition. Denier said, I saw that I am capable of doing this exactly like he. That's the tension when we talk about being created in the image of God, is that we still have the capacity to tarnish and fracture it. 
Genesis chapter 3, let's read in verse 8. Then the man, came, the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And so they hid from the Lord amongst the trees of the garden. They had just eaten from the forbidden fruit. But the Lord God called to man, where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden, but I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, that woman you put me here with, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is it that you've done? And the woman said, that serpent deceived me and I ate it. When we move from here to here, when we become fractured in our image displaying and we get confronted, we typically blame, not ourselves, but someone else. And so we see this, this very human pattern that gets repeated and over again. Blame. First blame the devil. Devil made me do it. Not my fault. Or blame someone else. You know, it was my neighbor, my kids, my spouse, the pastor. Ultimately, our blame goes to God. You look at what Adam did. Adam blamed his wife, but really he was blaming God. It's this wife, this woman that you gave me, that you put here. So Adam was pointing his fingers at God. That's what happens in our fractured state, is that we play this blame game. No one, you notice in this account, takes responsibility for their own actions. It's always someone else's fault. Sometimes we do this even when we apologize. If, uh, if someone had confronted us and you say, I'm sorry, but, as soon as we say but, we're not really sorry. We're playing the blame game. When we really own our sin, we say, yes, that was wrong. And there's no excuse. There's two kinds of sin that we talk about, two kinds of wrongdoing. The sin of commission, the things that we do wrong, and then there's the sin of omission, the things that we avoid doing that become wrong. Sunday school teacher once asked her class, what are the sins of omission? And after some little thought, a little fellow said, they're the sins that we should have committed, but we didn't get around to. Sadly, I think what we've failed often in representing Him, being full, good image bearers. Sin has shattered this image of God in us. We've rebelled against God, His loving rule, pursuing our own enjoyment and glory. Humanity proves itself over and over again a propensity towards evil, towards breaking the relationship. And what I'm saying is nothing new for all of us. And it's kind of depressing, and it's supposed to be, but that's not the end of the story. We go to the next step, the redemption. I believe that change in our lives from here to here can happen simply by trying harder or being smarter. I don't believe that we can actually pull ourselves up off the ground by our bootstraps to make ourselves better. I don't think that we have the technology to heal all the cracks so that we come, become like this. I think the only thing that really transforms us is being loved. Love takes us from here to here. You ever thought about what separates Christianity from all the other religions in the world? 
I believe there's two letters that separate Christianity from all the religions of the world. If you could define pretty much most religions out there, you can define them with two letters. D-O, which spells do. Most of the world's religions is about doing. Doing more, doing better. If you look at it, their statement of beliefs and, and how they operate and, and what they teach, it's about doing. Achieve this, and then you get that. Do this, and this is going to be the outcome. Doing, doing, doing. That's often what religion can become. Even our own faith can become about doing. But that's not what Christianity is about. Religion is often about what we can do for God so that we can get to heaven. Christianity comes along and adds two more letters. N-E. So it's not doing, or it's not do, it's done. Christianity is really about what God has done for us. God did for us what we could not have done for ourselves. That He lived a perfect life so that we would never have to die. That Jesus died on the cross to pay for the wrongdoings that we've committed. He's the only one through His love that can take this to this. So it's not us saying, oh, I need to heal myself. I need to work harder or smarter. Jesus comes along and says, I love you, and I will pour out my healing, and I will fill in the cracks. To become a real Christian is to humbly receive God's gift of forgiveness and to commit to following his leadership. When we do that, he adopts us into this family and he begins to change us from the inside out. Colossians 1, 21 and 22, which is often tied to your statement of beliefs in describing this topic, And I love this passage. It says, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now, He, that is Jesus Christ, has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in His sight, without blemish and free from accusation. God transforms us through Jesus Christ. He takes what is broken and fractured and makes it whole. And then in that process of doing that, we come to the fourth stage, a new creation, a restoration of sorts. What do we do with this? Well, I believe that first off, we have to believe that you and I are not fully okay. In a world where we celebrate our brokenness sometimes, we even brag about our brokenness, we say that this is what makes us special, that we define our identity because of our brokenness. Jesus comes along and reminds us that our identity is formed in the image of God, not our failures, which is exactly what we just sang about at the beginning of our worship uh, worship time together. Jesus reaches down and hands us his hand and pulls us up. All we have to do is be willing to accept that. Colossians 1.23 says, if you continue in your faith, establish and firm, and do not move from this hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you've heard, that you've, that's been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. If we hold on to that, if we embrace his love, we become recreated, a new creation. I believe that we are created to enjoy God, to reflect his glory, but sometimes we make a, a, a shipwreck of that calling, yet God lovingly acts to redeem us and restore us. 
But this is, I think, the process that we need to go through. First off, I think we have to identify our brokenness. We have to accept that this is where we start. I think that's ground zero. We have to identify with our brokenness. The second thing is that we have to own it and say, it's my fault. I have committed sins of commission or of omission. I have to own my brokenness. But we don't stop there. The next thing is then we accept God's love. We embrace God's love. And that is sometimes so hard. It's interesting. We look at the greatest commandment and the second greatest commandment, the second greatest commandment, love your neighbor. But it's based on loving ourselves. And I think when we embrace Jesus that we are actually beginning to embrace a healthy love for ourselves. And that when we fully embody that, we start to see healing and the cracks start to become mended. And then there's a turning. There's a shift that starts to happen. We feel empowered to start to turn from our failures and towards our relationship with God. And then he starts to do something incredible in a new creation. There's a young man in our church right now. When he first came to our church, he had no Bible background. He read the Bible just a little bit, actually. Um, hadn't finished high school. Young guy, broken home, messed up relationships. And yet, people loved him. And he started to experience God's love. And these men would speak into him and encourage him and keep coming back and reminding him of God's truths and say, you are loved, you are loved, you are loved. The other day he said to me, Cal, I'm so frustrated. I just realized the other day, I don't have enough time in this world to learn all that I can about how great God is, but I'm trying. And he is thinking about going to Bible college. He's wanting to learn more about God. Uh, his relationships are transforming. He struggled with certain kinds of relationships, and he says, Cal, I, I don't need those anymore. I just need God. There's another transformation that happened um, about seven years ago, and I'll wrap up with this. My mom was diagnosed with geoblastoma, stage four cancer, uh, on Mother's Day is when uh, she, had, she um, had a seizure and then we found out that that's what she was suffering from. And she, we visited with the doctor, and the doctor said that she will not recover from this, that this will kill her um, quickly. And in fact, the doctor kind of, or my mom, she couldn't speak at the time when we were with the doctor because of the cancer, the tumor had affected her speech. She can think properly, she just couldn't speak properly. So she asked us for a calendar. She opened the calendar, and she pointed to a date and to that day, she, that's the day that she passed away. But before that happened, we had lots of people praying for her. I was praying for her. We were praying that God would, would heal her of this cancer. So at her funeral, I remember being up in front of the, her friends and our family saying that God did not heal her of her cancer, but God healed her of her cancer. See, the cancer that she really was being afflicted by happened years earlier when she walked away from a marriage and from her faith. And she disappeared for a time where we could barely even contact her. And when we did see her, 
She had so much fear of us and um, just brokenness. She was just such a broken woman in so many ways. And there's things that I wanted to talk to her about and ask questions about, and she was so broken she couldn't even go there. She looked like this with a few pieces missing. And then the years went by, and she started coming out of that. She started coming back to her faith, and, but there was still a lot of brokenness. In those last four months that we had with my mom, we would spend time together. And she finally started to get it. She started to realize how much God loved her. And her bitterness towards other people started to slip away, and she would just forgive. She wouldn't hold on to anger, hold on to her bitterness. She just started loving people and, and just forgiving people and, and loving herself. When she died, I believe God healed her of her sin cancer. That she was displaying in so many ways in different stories the Imago Dei, this beautiful healed picture. That's our invite for us, that we were created to reflect God and His joy. How do we embrace this? Turning to God, entering into this covenant relationship with Him, renewing that covenant over and over again. We do that with communion, don't we? That be, communion becomes our covenant renewal time. And so now we're brought to this time in our service where we get to renew our covenant. And if this is a celebration of our relationship with Christ. If, if you don't have a relationship, if you're watching online, if, if you're here this morning and you don't have that relationship, talk to one of the leaders here or the person that brought you and ask, you, ask them about how do you find that relationship? How do you get to understanding this? Because maybe you're feeling this. But maybe today you have that relationship, you're still feeling this. You're in communion. Think of this. We're going to have Jenna come up and share some thoughts for us.